your presence as we've come to Holy Communion today. And we thank you for those words that you've spoken to us. Uh, you'll never leave us or forsake us. That you be with us to the very end of the age. And, and sometimes we just take great comfort in your presence, and we do that today. Amen. We start a new series today called Conversations with Jesus. It's a series that will look at a, a, a number of occasions where Jesus spoke directly with someone, and let's t- we'll take a look at some of the, the things he would say, the way he would think, the call that he would make, uh, what were the outcomes of those conversations with Jesus. We would obviously say that no one who spoke with Jesus came away unchanged. Not everyone went the direction we might expect them to or hope they would, but certainly a conversation with Jesus changed everything. I don't know in your circumstance if you've had the opportunity to have a lot of amazing conversations. I have had some of those with people. Conversations that I walked away from that made me think a lot or, or question something. Conversations that had some kind of depth to them. Some of the conversations at the time I didn't think were that, were, that were that important, and then years later I come back and say, boy, that was a very important conversation. One of those happened when I was about probably 11, 12, 13, somewhere, and I don't remember the exact age. I, I referenced that it was that time period because I was beginning to think there was something kind of neat about the opposite sex. And uh, I saw a girl that was pretty, I thought was very pretty, and I made a com- comment to my grandfather about how pretty this particular girl was that we drove by in the car. My grandfather, being a pretty wise person, saw that as an opportunity for some teaching. And while at the time I thought, what's this old man talking about? Years later, they go, I know he knew exactly what he was talking about. And he said, he said, now listen, grandson, there are two kinds of beauty. There is beauty that is shiny and new, but it doesn't last very long. It's only the kind that's skin deep. And there are a lot of people out there that look really great on the outside, but on the inside, not so much. But he says, if you can look past that, you can see a different kind of beauty that never ends. It never fades. It's a beauty that's on the inside of a person. And over time, that's the one that's more important. Now, I couldn't believe that when I was 11, 12, or 13, but I know he's right now. That's how life is. Well, conversations like that strike us. They, they leave us in a meaningful place. Sometimes there are conversations about faith. I think a lot of you know that I'm a big fan of the authors C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and the works they did, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and, and uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. What you might not know about that, those characters is that J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a devout Catholic, had a number of conversations about faith with C.S. Lewis, who was a agnostic, who said he wasn't sure about what he thought about God. They had a number of conversations. C.S. Lewis writes that after all those conversations with J.R.R. Tolkien, one day he has a conversation with God. Happened driving a car from Modlin College at Oxford to his home at the Kilns. And as C.S. Lewis was driving home, he said, I left Modlin College a confirmed agnostic. And as I talked with God, by the time that I arrived at my house, I was a confirmed Christian and a believer. Fascinating. 
stayed true to that for the rest of his life. Conversations with Jesus can change us. They're powerful. One of the stories I want us to look at as we start our conversation with Jesus is a conversation that happens in the Gospel of John, the third chapter. You might turn there if you have that in your Bibles, on your phone, or follow along on the screen. It tells the story of a man you've heard of, Nicodemus. And this is a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, as the story begins, there's something that you're going to see happen that I think happens across the lifespan of Nicodemus, but it happens in a lot of settings. And that is, there are a lot of things that start with a conversation, then they move to a point of consideration, and they close with a time of change, where a person makes a change because of what they've been through. Well, here's the conversation with Nicodemus. Now, there was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were religious leaders uh, in Israel that were very respected for a number of reasons. They didn't have to be old, but they usually were. That's kind of important to this story in a way. Nicodemus will describe himself as old. We don't know how old he was. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he was a person of significant influence in Jerusalem. Now, when Jesus had encounters with the Pharisees during the day, in the Bible, they were always contentious. It's interesting that he has a conversation with the Pharisee here at night. It indicates one of two possibilities about Nicodemus. One possibility is that Nicodemus has scheduled an appointment with Jesus at the end of his busy day. It's very possible. That would not have been at all unusual for Nicodemus to do something like that. Or the other possibility is that Nicodemus has been waiting all day long for a chance to talk to Jesus when no one else was around. Also a possibility. We don't know all this behind their nighttime meeting, but we fortunately get to hear the conversation that took place that night. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and he comes with a question that's very important across the Bible. It's important for us. Who are you, Jesus? Who are you, Jesus? Very important question. The follow-up to that is, what am I going to do with you, Jesus? It's another question we'll see across the conversations. Nicodemus wants to know who Jesus is. Rabbi, he says, teacher, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. Now, the Pharisees say this at other times, and it's almost said uh, ironically or, or sarcastically, but there's no indication that that's what Nicodemus is doing here. He seems to be genuinely impressed by the ministry of Jesus. He says, no one could perform the signs you're doing if God weren't with them. Now, Jesus responds in the conversation. He says, well, very truly, I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Nicodemus had been born into the ancestry line of Abraham. He was one of God's chosen people, an inheritor of a promise, a covenant promise. The words to be born again, that's the last thing Nicodemus wanted to do. He felt in his mind he'd won the lottery. 
He'd already been born into this nation of God's chosen people. Why would he want to be born again? Why would he want to be a part of something that's separate from that? In his mind, he had won the lottery because he was born into the right people, the right nation. He had a very nationalistic view of salvation. We are God's holy people, and I was born into that, and I've ascended to a place of great prominence among God's holy people. So there's a part of Nicodemus that's like, would, would wonder, why would you want me to be born again? I've already won. This is great. I do not believe for a second that when Nicodemus responds to Jesus, that he's confused. I don't believe that he's responding here like, oh, what are you talking about? This doesn't make any sense to me. I think it does make sense to him. I think he gets what Jesus is going for from the beginning. And so I think what Nicodemus does, he kind of plays along. He kind of says, okay, Jesus, born again, huh? Well, then, then how's that going to work? He kind of is making an argument back. He says, well, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asks. Surely they can't enter again into their mother's womb to be born, making the overstatement. He's, he's, he's saying something intentionally to kind of say, this is ridiculous. It's a pushback against what Jesus is doing. Not uncommon, by the way. Jesus frequently asks people to do things that they push back against. Maybe he asks you to do things that you push back against. When God calls you towards something, your natural inclination is to try to resist that instead of be obedient. I think that's what's happening here with Nicodemus. He gets that Jesus is hinting at something. And there's a part of Nicodemus which might even feel insulted. Born again... Are you saying something about me is not right? Bigger than that, this is the real heart of it. What we all hate is change, and Nicodemus is implying, is there something about me that has to change? I mean, I'm already influential, a leader, respected. You're telling me there's something in me that has to change, Jesus, if I want to be in heaven, the kingdom of God? Then Jesus says back to him in verse 5, I tell you the truth, Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. For the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This is a question that Nicodemus is wrestling now through the nature of the kingdom of God. Is it a place that you inherit by birthright? Or is it a place you inherit by being born again? And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you have to be born of the Spirit, not just of Abraham. This is something that's blowing the mind. Of Nicodemus. Jesus, you're saying something has to be radically, fundamentally different, even for me, a, a Jewish man of great prominence. Something in me has to change. Now, when he talks about the Spirit, Nicodemus would have had a second thought. Across the whole of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit has only shown up in very special and specific ways. The Holy Spirit They'll say, the spirit of the Lord was upon me. We read that sometimes in writings by writers like Isaiah. 
and others who write about that. We read that for David and for Moses, there were occasions where the Spirit of the Lord was upon them. When the Spirit was upon them, they either wrote or did great things. But there was nothing in the Old Testament where God's Spirit was universally poured out on all the people. It was very specific, selective. Yet here, Jesus is talking about the Spirit being given to all who are born of it. It's a big deal. Nicodemus, if you want to be a part of God's kingdom, first of all, it's not about being born in the right place. It's about being born right with God through the Spirit. It's an individual decision, not a national one. And you're going to do this thing. If you're part of God's Spirit and his blessing is on you, then there's going to be an expectation on you just like there was on David and on Moses. It was a big thing. Jesus is challenging the thinking of Nicodemus in ways he couldn't have imagined. But he goes on from there. He's not limited in that. As he talks more about the nature of the Spirit, he goes on to say this. This is the way it has to be, Nicodemus. It is this way with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus asks, how in the world can this be? And then Jesus sees the questioning that he has, and he says, Nicodemus, you're Israel's teacher. Do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. Interesting that Jesus uses the word we here. The plurality of God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God. We speak of what we know. We testify of what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. This is a huge confrontation with the leader, one of the leaders of Israel. Jesus is having a heart-to-heart talk with Nicodemus that's what's the kind we don't like. We love it when Jesus, our conversation with Jesus are, hey, will you help Aunt Mary who's sick and Aunt Mary gets well? We love those kinds of prayers. We love conversations where Jesus, where we say, I really don't feel like I'm worth much. I'm pretty depressed. And, and we hear, well, God doesn't make junk. I love you just the way you are. We love those conversations. Not such a big fan of the conversations when we pray and we get the sense something in me has to change. I have to change the way I think, change the way I act, change the way that I teach, change the way. We're just not big on those. We avoid them. Here, Jesus is confounding Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the people, and you don't know these things? This is matter of fact. What's wrong with you, Nicodemus? What's wrong with you? Verily, truly, I tell you, I know what I'm talking about, Nicodemus. Do you know what you're talking about? Verse 12, he hammers this point home. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who comes from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, one of the things that we're always afraid in conversations is someone will go there. Going there means going to the place that you really don't want to talk about that thing, whatever it is. It's something that you you hope no one even knows about it, let alone that they talk about it. And so... One of the challenges that the Pharisees and all of the teachers of Israel had had all along was something that God had done in the Old Testament. It confounded them, it confused them, it frustrated them. It left them asking, why would God ever have done such a thing as he did in Numbers 4? 
It's one of the most objectionable things that, uh, that the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees had to wrestle with. It was a time where God did something that seemed completely out of his character. And they did not want you to talk to them about it because they didn't have an answer. There was no answer to this. They could not make sense at all of what happens in Numbers 4. Do you know what happens in Numbers 4? Remember this occasion? The Israelites have been grumbling and complaining against Moses, against Aaron. God's frustrated with them. And so God in Numbers 4 sends, this is terrible, he sends out a plague of serpents, of snakes. Isn't that terrible? I don't know if some of you like snakes, that's not me at all. And the thought of thousands and thousands of snakes just descending on the camp is terrifying to me. That's like my worst nightmare. And the snakes were biting people and killing them. The poison that was in them was deadly. It was toxic. And people were dying in mass. And the people run to Moses and say, what are we supposed to do? These, these snakes are killing everybody. And they're terrified about the plague that God sent on them in Numbers 4. Now, that's not the part that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had a problem with. It's what God tells Moses to do. To them, it's a gross abomination of sin. It's a point where God seems to go against God. Because God tells Moses, here's what you need to do. You need to take, a, take some bronze and melt it down into the shape, the graven image of a serpent. And lift it up for everyone to look at. And to the Jewish people, this seems like idolatry. It seems like you're breaking the Ten Commandments. Why would God have ever have said, lift up a snake? If you look at the snake, you'll be healed. This made zero sense to them. It was like, what was God thinking that day? Like, God surely didn't know what he was doing on that occasion. He must have, you know, something was off, because that doesn't fit anything else in the story. And that's what we tend to do. If something seems off, God must be wrong, not us. And so that's what these teachers of law struggled with. And if someone pushed on that button, if they went there, they didn't have a good answer for that. And that's exactly where Jesus goes. He goes there with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, let's talk about Numbers 4 for a moment. He does it by what he says next in the story. Oh, by the way, Jesus has said one other thing that's important here. You go back there, just before that, at the end of verse 13, he has said, no one has ever gone into heaven except, except for the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. This has got Nicodemus thinking about the Messiah, the promised one. And then as he's thinking about that, Jesus goes there. Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, he says, just as... as Moses did that, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus' mind, <laughs> wait a minute. You're telling me the story is not finished, it's not fixed, it's still being written. You're telling me that that story about the snake and the serpent, that the understanding and the purpose and the meaning of that is tied to the Messiah, the Son of Man, an event in the future. 
For Nicodemus, this is huge. There's an answer to the hardest question. The answer just hasn't been given yet. Think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute, because we have hard questions too, don't we? Sometimes there is a perfectly good answer to the hard question, but God hasn't given it to us yet. That was the case for Nicodemus. That was the case for the Pharisees. That was the case of history. Because that thing about the serpent being put up on a stick, and everyone looks at it being healed, that's not going to make sense until Jesus goes to the cross and takes on the sins of the world. And then all who look to him will be saved, just like those people looked to that serpent and were saved that day. For Nicodemus, who's got questions about Jesus, a big question is now coming into his mind. Jesus, are you saying that you are part of God, we? Are you saying you're the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Promised One? And are you telling me that you're going to be lifted up in some way? What are you telling me? You're telling me I have to believe in you to have eternal life? That I don't just get it because of where I was born? You're telling me what I do with you changes everything. Then comes that great verse you memorized as a child. See, all of that verse, John 3, 16, it all comes from this conversation with Nicodemus. That's the part of the story you want to remember that. Now Jesus gives that great truth to Nicodemus, and it's a great truth to us. He says, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him, Nicodemus, is not condemned. I had the word. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You see, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Don't miss this. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. He was afraid for people to know. He was even having the conversation. Jesus continues to call him out, doesn't he? Which kind of a person are you going to be, Nicodemus? Are you going to be a lover of the light or one who hides in the darkness? Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. Uh-oh. Exactly what had happened to Nicodemus. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Jesus finishes his conversation with Nicodemus with a call. Nicodemus, are you going to stay in the shadows or are you going to come out into the light 
and be changed. See, Jesus knows not just what our words are, but he knows what's happening in our hearts. And I think he senses in Nicodemus, just like the rich young ruler, a heart that wants to make believing something that's a part of him, but who's still struggling. Fortunately for us, we, we get more than just the conversation. And so in our last couple of minutes, I want to share with you a little bit more about the life of Nicodemus. He shows up again. In John chapter 7, the people are having a debate. It starts with that same question, Jesus, who are you? On hearing Jesus' words, some people said, surely this man's a prophet. Others said, he's the Messiah. Still others ask, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, went back to Nicodemus who asked them, hey, why didn't you bring Jesus into us? And the guard said, no one has ever spoken the way this man does. And the leader of the Pharisees says, you mean he's deceived you also? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in Jesus? No, this mob knows nothing of the law. There's a curse on them. Nicodemus who might be starting to believe, speaks up. He's a part of this group that just got spoken for. He's the same Nicodemus who had gone earlier, who was one of their own number, and he said, does the law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? Now, this is no bold confession of faith, He's making a question of the law, saying, doesn't our due process demand we listen to what he says? But you get something about Nicodemus here, right? He's stepping into the light just a little bit. He's challenging this idea that no one among us believes. He's saying, shouldn't we at least listen to him to hear what he has to say? Conversations with Jesus can change us. Now, in Nicodemus' story, there's one more little chapter left to be written. It's a big one. It happens after Jesus has been sentenced to die on the cross, after he's been hung there, and after he has died. We read these words in John chapter 19. Verse 31 says this. It was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath, because... The Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side, bringing a sudden flow of blood and of water. The man who saw it, that is John, the author of this gospel, has given testimony. His testimony is true. He knows what he tells is the truth. He testifies so that you also may believe John's having a conversation with us. He wants us to believe his testimony. These things happen so that the scripture could be fulfilled. Not one bone will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. 
So the bodies are to be taken down. Verse 38 says, Later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, like Nicodemus, because he feared the Jewish leaders. So with Pilate's permission, he came and took away the body. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrhs and aloes, about 75 pounds. This tells us a whole bunch about Nicodemus. First, he thought a lot of himself. He had bought his own burial spices so that when he died, there would be so much spice and smell that people would smell it for city blocks. Like instead of a stench, it would be this aroma and people were going to say, man, who died? He must have been really rich to have all that spice because this was enough. This is the kind of spice that you would put on a king or somebody. This was huge, 75 pounds. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in a locker room and someone sprayed brute deodorant spray. A little does a lot. Some of you poor women had to grow up with boys in junior high that dosed all over themselves. It's disgusting. Today it's Axe body spray, right? A little goes a long way, guys. Trust me. But beyond that, 75 pounds was just overkill. Clearly Nicodemus had thought a lot of himself. But he thought even more of Jesus. And he comes to the end of himself here. And Nicodemus, who's always been afraid, finally makes it public. Because guess what? Everyone knows they've gone to Pilate. His buddies, the Pharisees, know that it's him that gets the body of Jesus down. Because they're all watching it. They all know that he is saying, this Jesus is something special. And even though you guys voted to kill him, I'm going to give him the very best thing I have left to give. And I'm going to give him all my burial spices. And even though you just killed him on the cross, guess what? If you go around this cemetery, you're going to smell this beautiful aroma. And we're going to prepare him, just like he was a king. And I think he does that in part because Nicodemus has made him the king of his own life. He has come to believe. And finally, at the end, he is not afraid he is not ashamed, and he gives Jesus the best earthly thing he has to give him. And I suspect, though I can't prove it 100%, I suspect Nicodemus becomes part of the 120 that we'll hear about just around the corner from this event. We don't have any more recorded things about Nicodemus in the Bible, But curiously, we do have something recorded in the extra-biblical literature of the first century. And it's hard to know for certain. I said earlier that Nicodemus said he was an old man. That might have just been somewhat euphemistically speaking, not actually for old. Whatever the case was, about 30 years after the death of Jesus, the name Nicodemus shows up in some literature as a man of Jerusalem who had known Jesus who was incredibly generous and whom people even came for. And it was said that when he prayed for them, they got well. Can't prove that's the same Nicodemus. Highly debated. But it doesn't sound inconsistent with what we've learned about the transformation in the life of Nicodemus. 
It also fits something else. No one who encounters Jesus leaves the same way. So what of you and I? Are there conversations that we need to have with Jesus? What's the part of our life that we say, oh, don't go there, Jesus. You go anywhere else, but don't go there. Or we need to have a hard conversation. What part of us needs to change? If you're a Christian and you hear those words today, well, you're not unlike Nicodemus. Nicodemus has had the nature of his story changed. Initially, Nicodemus thought he knew how it was all going to work out and end. And Jesus has changed everything for him. What about you? Are you willing to give your story to Jesus? Do you see that in God's story, Nicodemus played a big part? You recognize that he prepared the Passover lamb on the day of preparation? He had that task in God's story? Nicodemus, who was asking Jesus about what's going on here, what's God's plan for you, didn't realize God had a big plan for Nicodemus. Well, think of God's plan. A preacher is telling you his story almost 2,000 years after the fact about his life. Could it be that you are a part of God's story too? Because I think that you are. Who knows? People may be talking about you 2,000 years from now if the Lord tarries. And your faithfulness. And your conversion. And your righteous acts. This is what I know. Nicodemus talked to Jesus and everything changed. I hope that you're talking with Jesus. You need to be in a conversation with him. And if you've been in a conversation with Jesus already, and you're considering making this decision that Jesus called Nicodemus to, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. If you're ready to make that decision, we want to help you with that as well. Later on, ask how that happens. Peter said, repent of your sins, confess Jesus your Lord, be baptized, and walk filled with the Spirit of God. If you're at that place where you're ready to make that decision, we encourage you to make it as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation.